Today's episode is brought to you by the youth of today with their fancy robots that look like people and their loud rock music and their titles with letters in them and their 16 bits of graphical fidelity. Back in my day, we wouldn't have called him Launch Octopus. We'd have called him Torpedo Man. We'd have walked to his boss room uphill both ways in the snow. And none of this fancy dashing nonsense either. Anyway, it's 1993's Mega Man X, not to be confused with the Roman numeral for 10, this title is literally X, on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this shows the chronicle of my attempts to play through every Mega Man game, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100 plus games in between as I can. And there's a lot to cover in this episode, because Mega Man X is kind of a big deal game in a lot of different ways. God, where do I even start? We have moved off of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Back in 1991, two years prior to this game's release, Nintendo released the Super Nintendo Entertainment System because the NES's hardware limitations were really starting to show. You could only do so much visually with games, but also the controller was limited to a D-pad, start, select, A and B, and that was not enough buttons as game design was evolving to really suit all the different gameplay things that Nintendo wanted to explore and do and what developers wanted to explore. Capcom had toyed around on the SNES prior to this, They'd been releasing titles like The Magical Quest starring Mickey Mouse and Street Fighter 2 being ported over to Super Nintendo and stuff, so it wasn't like this was their first game on the system, but it was the first Mega Man title to actually make the jump. Capcom kind of decided that just making Mega Man 6 and continuing to look and feel exactly like the previous games had was probably not really going to cut it just yet. This was a whole new generation of technology that they could take advantage of, they could do more with the controls, they could do more visually in terms of like size of enemies and the amount of action going on on screen and the visual effects and all this kind of stuff. And the classic format, like, if you haven't gotten tired of listening to the episodes of the classic series yet, it's a very, very strict formula. Not in a bad way, and there's lots of subtle evolutions that can be made there, but they wanted to change things up a little bit heavier. And I guess what they came up with at the end of the day was, instead of making Mega Man 6, they wanted to do a spin-off. This was, the SNES was the future of gaming, so let's do the future of Mega Man. And so we'll get into exactly how it's related, but Mega Man X is considered a second series within Mega Man. All the games we've been playing up until now have been the classic series, which is just generally referred to as Mega Man, because it doesn't have any additional steady subtitle. This is the Mega Man X series, and it stars a new main character, a new Mega Man. Technically, I'm to understand his name is not actually Mega Man. His his name is literally just X. Here's some of the things that have changed from the previous titles. Right away, when we boot up the game and we get to the title screen, in addition to game start and password, we actually have an option screen. That option screen does give us access to a sound test, but more importantly, it lets us actually reassign our control buttons for the first time in the series. God would Mega Man DOS have ever benefited from that. Of note, there are three new buttons that we actually have to assign. Two of them are a function that would stick around pretty much in the entire rest of the series, which is weapon quick swapping. By default, this is set to the L and R buttons. 
Essentially, once we have more than just the Mega Buster to use, or I guess it's the Axe Buster now, pressing these buttons will rotate through our weapons without us having to access the Start menu. Technically, if you need to switch to a specific weapon very, very quickly, it is actually better in practice to still pause and access the menu to get directly to the weapon you want. But also, one of the things that tended to dissuade actually switching weapons too much in the previous games was the fact that you had to pause the game, bring up this menu, switch weapon, bring down the menu. It's It slowed down the pace of the game. Being able to switch in real time really actually helps encourage actually changing up your weapons regularly and using them, which is one of the things that I think makes a Mega Man game very good. So, it sticks. I, I don't know if we're going to see another Mega Man game that doesn't have quick swap. Well, that's false. We're still going to have, like, the Game Boy games and stuff that literally don't have the buttons to allow for that. The X-Series actually has an upgrade system. We've had collectibles and, like, secret weapons in the previous games. In the X games, you actually start with only about half the maximum life that you would have had in previous games. However, every single one of the Robot Master stages has a heart tank that you can pick up that adds essentially two extra health to you permanently. E-tanks are gone, but they have been replaced with sub-tanks, which are findable items that are essentially permanent upgrades, and if you collect too much health, as in you are already at max and you pick up a health-restoring item, that additional health will actually transfer into your sub-tank, and you can recharge them that way, and then essentially pull from them when you need some extra HP. And those aren't the only upgrades you can find. There's actually, like, gameplay-altering ones that we're going to get into, too. They aren't different weapons. In fact, we actually have no utility weapons in this game. The closest we have is on the start screen. If you've finished a stage already, there is now an exit button you can select that will send you back out of the stage. Rush is gone, but there is no, like, Rush Coil or Rush Jet equivalent either in this game. Another thing that is a much subtler feature in this game that I almost didn't notice was happening, this game automatically implements the energy balancer system. This is not the first appearance of the energy balancer. We've actually skipped a game that will be next episode where the energy balancer was actually first introduced, but only by a matter of months. In X, it's very subtle. The game never tells you that it's there, and I didn't realize it until, like, very, very, very late. The energy balancer essentially makes it so that if you pick up ammo refills while you are on a weapon that is already completely full, or just your X-Buster, the ammo will actually be automatically transferred to your sub-weapons, which is really nice. But ironically, not actually necessarily that impactful except for in one stage in this game, and we'll get into why. We no longer have sliding in this game. It's gone. That might seem kind of sudden and unexpected, but we will be getting something in its place, and we'll get to there eventually. A whole new feature that was added specifically for Mega Man X that I don't think ever works its way back into the classic series is wall jumping. When you jump at a wall in Mega Man X, you will actually, like, cling onto it and slowly slide down it. And from that location, you can jump. You can jump across, or you can jump up against that wall repeatedly. And in the process of doing so, you will actually be able to scale walls. This drastically changes how you interact with a lot of the stages in this game. It changes how they had to design a lot of the stages. Spiked walls and stuff that keep you from climbing them are a little bit more common. It also allowed them to do a lot more with just like verticality and giving you a little bit more freedom in how to tackle the stages. It's it's a really interesting and impactful change to how the game's handled. And of course, because we have moved on to the SNES, we are dealing with 16-bit graphics. Mega Man's sprite is larger, it is more detailed on his new model. The visual effects are much greater. Many of the weapons look much more impactful, do much more visually. 
And also the games are way less prone to slowdown. That doesn't mean there is no slowdown in Mega Man X. It can absolutely still happen. But I mean, we get bosses that are no longer the same size as Mega Man. We get like robot masters that are smaller than him or that are way larger. And of course, we have some kickin' new music using not just the limitations of the original NES sound chip, but actually sound samples and something that sounds a little bit less like video game music and a bit more like hard rock. In Mega Man X, running a system diagnostic of X himself. Our opening screen details his new capabilities, and then is followed up by a message from the esteemed Dr. Thomas Light. Light finally finished his greatest project, X, a robot who truly has free will. Even Mega Man and Roll and Proto Man and all them prior still had to obey some level of their programming, but X was truly designed to be free. However, with all the fighting going on with Dr. Wily, Dr. Light was afraid that in the current state of the world, X might choose to become a warrior, and if a robot was ever to turn on humans without the limitation of the laws of robotics preventing him from doing so, it could be truly disastrous. So Dr. Light sealed X away, leaving him to awaken 30 years later, long after Dr. Light and Dr. Wily had passed. In fact, X's capsule would be discovered by a scientist by the name of Dr. Kane. Fascinated by what he had discovered, Dr. Kane used X as inspiration to create the Reploids, free-willed robots that resembled animals just as much as people. Unexpectedly, however, many Reploids started to go berserk and attack people. In order to counter them, the Maverick Hunters were formed. But what initially began as isolated incidents turned into a much more organized rebellion, when the former Maverick hunter, Sigma, turned Maverick himself. Establishing himself as leader of the Mavericks, the hunters were forced into action against their former comrade, and in order to help protect humanity, X joined the Maverick hunters. Yeah, we've got a little bit more serious of an opening this time. X, X as a series actually attempted to do something with its storytelling, and we're we're seeing the beginning of Shades of that here. We'll probably be revisiting this game with a certain title later in the future and going more into depth on what is actually going on, but that's that's the setup for Mega Man X. Also, at the setup for this, we will cover the opening stage of Mega Man X, because this is, I mean, technically it's not the first Mega Man game with an opening stage, but when you start up a new file of Mega Man X, you are not immediately dropped into the boss select screen. You are actually dropped into an opening scene, which is on a futuristic highway that is kind of falling apart because it's fallen under Reploid attack. This is a really interesting opening stage. It is a very straightforward stage. There are very few enemies in it of note, but it is it is very subtly and cleverly designed to help you learn and figure out the controls organically. There is an incredible video, YouTube up Sequelitis, Mega Man X sometime, and there is a really, really good dig into a number of 
subtler things about how some of the Mega Man games are designed, but especially Mega Man X's opening stage is a very good study for any aspiring level designers out there about how to teach a game's mechanics in the first level and how to basically push a player without them realizing it to understand what is actually going on by doing things like tricking the player into learning how to wall jump. Because that's a whole new feature, and players are going to need to know how to do that in order to progress the game. They don't they don't have a choice, so it's important that they're taught here. I'll be covering the stages relatively quickly, so what I will say is that at the end of this opening stage, a Boba Fett-looking robot drops down from a Sky Carrier at us. He is riding his own, like, giant mech suit, and long story short, we get our butts kicked by him. It is impossible to kill him, first off. Or at least I'm pretty sure it's not possible to actually, like, quote-unquote, win this opening fight. If he beats you up enough, and he will, if not just because there's attacks you literally can't jump over, once he beats you up enough, you'll get stunned and grabbed, and then a friend will come in to save you. This is the introduction scene for a robot by the name of Zero. Zero is going to be a very important character throughout this Mega Man timeline in general. We're going to be seeing a whole lot of him. While his X certainly has resemblance to the classic Mega Man design, he's still like predominantly blue and a little bit of like sleeker, shinier white, and still has like a familiar helmet and stuff. Zero is he's a little bit sleeker in design, his palette is largely red, and probably the most distinctive feature that we see on Zero in this game has to do with the fact that he actually has like synthetic and massive long blonde hair, which I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people who thought Zero was a girl the first time they played through this game. Would not surprise me. Interestingly, Zero does not have his signature weapon in this game. I don't think he gets that until the next game. So for the time being, he's actually just shown using a traditional buster, which we'll get to that when Zero comes back in a future game. How utterly weird that is. But Zero comes and saves us from this Boba Fett-looking jerk named Vile. Real creative name. Zero is a senior Maverick Hunter who's been watching out for us, and he basically saves us and tells us, like, hey, I'm gonna go figure out what's going on with Sigma's Fortress, I need you to deal with some of the Mavericks that have gone on Rampage, and then we finally get to go to the stage select. We don't just have faces and names, we have, like, a changeable interface that can show us the names or the faces or, like, the location where the bosses are. It's, it's just, like, an extra level of unnecessary detail that's kind of cool to see. I'm gonna jump right in with the stage that you absolutely should play first in this game, which is Chill Penguin stage. You'll notice I didn't say, like, Chill Man or Penguin Man here. The X bosses tend to follow a naming convention of adjective noun or, like, descriptor thing. The first being something about their special ability, and the second part being essentially what kind of, like, animal or otherwise inspiration the robot's actual physical design is based around. So Chill Penguin, naturally, is a small little fat penguin who uses ice abilities. Chill Penguin stage is a very pretty stage that lets us really take in the quality of the new graphics and the new music. We get some familiar enemy types, like the rabbits from Woodman stage and the bat enemies come back in this stage, and we also get a handful of new ones that animate a lot more interestingly than the previous enemies, like these spike-covered wheels that after you shoot them they actually like fall over and skid to a stop. It's also a level that demonstrates something that was interestingly not in any of the previous Mega Man games, which is slopes. I know that sounds like 
like a dumb thing to mention, but slopes in 2D platformers are notoriously actually very difficult to get physics working with. There were very, very few NES games that dared to use slopes because they were a pain. And I'm fine mentioning all of that because really there's actually very little. The only, like, significant feature of note in Chill Penguin stage level design-wise is in the second half of the stage, you get to jump in one of those giant mech suits. They're called ride armors, and you get to run around and punch things for like a few seconds towards the end of the stage, and that's actually about it. It's not really utilized, it's just kind of there. Chill Penguin stage is very, very basic. It gives you a good opportunity to get used to the stage, and also, there is actually one thing that's very important in Chill Penguin stage, which is that we pick up our first upgrade capsule here. It is always going to be the first one you get because it is required to pick up the others. Okay, so the upgrade capsules, there's four of them to find in the game. And when you find them, you will see a hologram of Dr. Light. He really wishes that X will be able to live a peaceful life in a peaceful future. But he also knows sometimes the world doesn't work out that way. And so he designed a ton of different armor upgrades for X that he left behind in these capsules in the hopes that if the worst came to worse and X did have to fight, Dr. Light would still in some way be able to exist him, even though he hasn't been alive for several years. This first upgrade capsule gives us the ability to dash, and that is the extra button. This is our kind of replacement for slide. It doesn't really, like, let us get into smaller areas, but that's fine. The game is never designed around that anyway. But being able to dash lets us go quickly. And more than that, if you dash and then jump, that momentum carries into your jump. So now you have the ability to essentially long jump by doing this. And even if you, like, turn around in the air midway through that jump, that momentum is still going to keep going, and you'll be able to, like, rapidly reposition yourself, you can dash and jump off of the wall to get extra range. Dashing is a central mechanic to Mega Man X. It's a really, really, really important one for repositioning yourself for for combat with these very active enemies. I will tell you, I played the game through once, starting at Chill Penguin stage, and then went backwards through the order of the stages I'm about to tell you through, ending on Chill Penguin stage. And this game is like, technically this dash is optional, but this game does not feel like it is designed without the player having the dash. Some of these bosses are way the hell harder. Some of these stages are really, really difficult without the ability to do these long jumps and stuff. I am talking about just, like, the size of some of these enemies and the way they move and stuff. It is very hard to deal with them without being able to dash on a dime. So, if you play Mega Man X, go to Chill Penguin stage first. Anyway, we finish up the stage, we reach Chill Penguin, and he also gives us a great opportunity to talk about the fact that the bosses in these games are a lot more varied. First off in size, Chill Penguin is actually smaller than X himself is. But also, he has like four different attacks, whereas most of the bosses in the game up to this have had two or like maybe three. He can chuck some ice projectiles at you. He can create an icy breath that creates these like penguin statues in front of him that then hang around until they like slam into a wall or get shot down and they can actually block attacks, including his own. He can go invincible and he can do like a sliding dash that bounces around the arena. He can jump up onto the ceiling and grab a hook and cause a blizzard that like pushes you and the statues up against a wall and stuff. And it's pretty random which ones he does too. This is the big thing about Mega Man X bosses is one of the upgrades they decided to do was just giving every boss more things they could do. So they're definitely very, very interesting and fun fights. And in general, I don't know if this will stay true for the rest of the X series, but definitely for this one, I think the bosses are generally a strong point. Anyway, let's get moving on and start belting out some of these other stages. Specifically, let's hit up Storm Eagle stage next. 
rocking stage music aside, Storm Eagle stage is themed around like an airport or airbase type of area. You're going to have a whole lot of platforming to do in it. It has a couple interesting side things. If you want the heart tank in this stage, for instance, you actually need to climb up the lifts at the start of the stage and then just take a leap of faith back to the left to the start of the stage to land over the start point. This stage actually has stuff that is like very, very easy to find in general. If you bash away at some of the like oil tanks that are in these stages, you'll be able to find an upgrade capsule for the helmet upgrade for Mega Man, which, god, the helmet is kind of useless. This upgrade just allows Mega Man to break certain blocks over his head. There's maybe four locations total in the entire game where this actually does anything. Like, genuinely, pretty much the only use of it is to get the upgrade that I'm going to mention in the next stage. And technically, there's a different way to get that upgrade, so the helmet's just there. Anyway, this is a stage that you have to take down a lot of enemies that are on moving platforms in order to progress those moving platforms, and it does bring up a good opportunity for me to mention the fact that we still have the chargeable X-Buster, but enemies in Mega Man X tend to have more health in general than I am used to from just traditional Mega Man enemies. Even a fully charged shot by itself generally isn't enough to take down an enemy. You're probably going to have to still shoot some regular bullets afterwards, which is a bit tricky, but we'll get into it. It, it definitely emphasizes actually pulling out your weapon arsenal to help deal with things, because your weapons are usually going to be more effective at taking down enemies. This game gets notably easier with every upgrade and additional weapon and stuff that you pick up. We finish the stage by actually boarding a uh, like jet as it takes off, and while we're standing on top of the jet, uh, Storm Eagle comes down to fight us. Half the time, he kind of attacks you, or like he will directly dive bomb you from the corners of the stage every once in a while. Otherwise, he might just fly back down and land on the platform, and then rather than trying to damage you directly with a weapon, he will actually just try to blow you off the platform, either through extended winds or by firing off like a long cyclone shot. This is another one of those cases that really illustrates the fact that, like, I think this game expects you to go to Chill Penguin first and get the dash first, because if you have the ability to dash, you can just dash against this wind and actually, like, continue to fight. If you don't have the dash, and you are in a bad position when Storm Eagle starts pushing you around, you're just done. There's nothing you can do, and it really sucks. Other than that, fairly simple and fairly easy. We'll hit up Flame Mammoth stage next. This is a stage that illustrates something that's really neat with Mega Man X, which is there's a couple of stages in this game that will actually have features of the stage change based on if you have completed certain stages prior or not. Flame Mammoth stage is predominantly set in like this factory environment, so you have like conveyor belts that are dropping off like scrapped Raploids into like a fire pit and stuff. If you have completed Chill Penguin stage prior to this, there is no fire pit. It's completely frozen over, which means that if you've done Chill Penguin stage, not only do you have the dash, but this stage in general is just easier. It also gives you an easy opportunity to pick up a heart tank that otherwise would be a pain in the neck to get because it's underneath a platform sitting on top of the fire. Overall, though, this is this is a fairly simple stage even if you don't take out Chill Penguin first. But it's just interesting that it kind of doubles down on that and gets much easier if you've taken out Chill Penguin, even though Flame Mammoth's weapon is actually Chill Penguin's weakness, so there's there's merits to both directions. Anyway, if you have picked up the dash in the helmet in the stage, you can make a really awkward jump to a slight overhang in the ceiling and bust your way up and through that. If you're lucky, the, the mechanics on it are really, really 
really awkward and every once in a while you'll fall down and just have to reset the stage in order to respawn those blocks it's a pain but where i'm going with this is if you climb up the shaft you will find the third upgrade capsule which is for the buster parts the additional buster allows for an additional level of charge on your x buster if you charge up to this additional level you get a gigantic long spread of shots that does like a ton of damage to regular enemies it doesn't actually do more damage to bosses Notably, it's it's specifically more oriented towards making your buster better against regular enemies. But, and we'll get into what this does weapon specifically when we get to the weapon section, it also enables you to charge up your weapons. And when you fully charge weapons, they actually gain an entire second function. And that's really cool, and we're going to be talking about that when we get there. Flame Mammoth himself, if Chill Penguin was smaller than X, Flame Mammoth is like twice your height and width. He is a Big boy, you fight him not in a singularly square room, but actually in a long room with a conveyor belt where he can be off screen and still attacking you. He can change the direction of the conveyor belt. He can throw oil onto it to, like, get you stuck. He can shoot fire, obviously. He can jump around. He's a fairly simple boss, but kind of fun. Next stage is a fairly simple one to talk about and a fairly quick one to talk about, which is uh, Boomer Quanger's stage. Um, side note, what the hell is a Quanger? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be like a Kuagata beetle, which is like, yeah, a horned beetle. But a Quanger? What? Okay, Boomer Quanger. Anyway, his stage is predominantly a vertical stage reminiscent of Elac Man's, which takes on a bit of a different meaning. Now that we have a wall climb, this is a really good stage for illustrating the way that that actually impacts how they can design levels. We also have to like climb up and deal with like segments of the wall moving in and out. There is a section that is basically like that one section from Gyroman where there's an elevator going up and we have to avoid spikes as we go. There's also a really neat little subsection where there's like these alarm sensors and if you step into the alarms while they are active, you'll get shot by the turrets on the wall, but otherwise they won't do anything. This is also a stage that really starts to show that Mega Man X is some, I guess I'll call it really intelligent enemy positioning. The other word you could choose is infuriating. Enemies tend to be exactly where you need to go, and it's some of the positioning in this level is really tricky to deal with, especially if this happens to be your first stage and all you have is your X-Buster. When we finish up this stage, we do get to Boomer Quanger himself, who has, like, all he does is, like, teleport around randomly, occasionally dash at you, which he'll grab and throw you if he catches you, but whatever. Maybe he'll throw a boomerang around. He's just an annoying boss. He's not necessarily a fun one so much, because he's just, he just spends a lot of time teleporting and being invincible. Okay, halfway there. Uh, Sting Chameleon. Largely like a very pretty Woodman-style stage, has the most adorable Metars I have seen in the series to date. They hang out under bushes, and rather than firing shots at you, they just, like, throw these little worms at you. They're adorable. At one point in the stage, you do briefly go through a cave. If you dash jump and then climb up the wall above the cave, you can actually fight a mini-boss who has an absurd amount of health, but if you take down this, like, just 
big, jumpy, fat robot, you will get the final upgrade capsule, which is the body armor, which just halves all the damage you take. If you slide down the first pit in the cave, you will actually find out that, surprise, it's not a pit. If you finish launch Octopus's stage in the future, this pit will actually be flooded, and you can use the lower gravity from it being underwater to make a long jump to a heart container. After this, there's a segment where you're climbing through the marsh, and you get to jump in a ride armor again, and this time you actually get to punch out other ride armors and stuff as you go, which is kind of fun. Rolling back, I do want to mention, I hate the fact that there is a heart tank that is down a pit. When you almost fall down the pit, the screen will scroll down and show you like, oh, there is actually stuff under here. But otherwise, no. There's no indicator that there's actually something down there. It's a pain in the neck. Anyway, uh, Sting Chameleon is a very, very interesting boss because he spends most of the fight actually climbing around on the vines in the background, being invincible and camouflaged as well. He is a chameleon. But if you watch the background, you can see subtle distortions of the visuals as he moves. It's a really nicely done effect, actually. And then whenever he reappears, he's got a few different moves, like lashing out his tongue at you, or throwing needles, or like shaking the ceiling, which is made of spikes, and making them fall down at you. It would be a fun fight if he didn't spend so much time being untargetable. Then we head into the requisite underwater stage for Launch Octopus. Launch Octopus's stage is just as much defined by being underwater as it is by the fact that it is a mini-boss focus stage. Depending on how you play through the stage, you could argue there's like five mini-boss fights in the stage, which is more than even Ringman's stage had. And again, this is a stage where not having the dash or other weapons will make this stage extremely difficult. One of the mini-bosses, you have to fight on like this small platform where you can fall off into spikes in either direction, and this boss will like push you around or pull you in, and it's it's very hard to avoid falling to your death, or at least avoid some form of damage by like just jumping straight into him if you don't have the dash to counteract that. This stage does have a cool part where there's this ship that's dropping bombs on you, and if you ride some currents in the stage up onto it, you can shoot down the ship. And if you do that, the entire thing will actually crash down instead of just disappearing, and it will bust open the floor and reveal a hidden room with another mini-boss fight. And then after that is the heart tank in the stage. I just remember thinking that was a really cool little thing, that there was actually this section that you could just bring an enemy down and break part of the stage. And Launch Octopus himself as a boss is a pain in the neck. He has a lot of projectiles that he fires, and all of them will basically counteract your projectiles by, like, canceling each other out. His movement is fairly simple overall, though. He does have one move where after he lands, he creates like a cyclone in the water and tries to draw you in, and if he grabs you, he'll like drain some life out of you. If you have the dash, it's really, really easy to escape that, and I don't think I ever got caught by it, even when I didn't have the dash. Armored Armadillo stage is next. This is a mining stage that has a very, very like high-octane, high-speed focus. You're basically alternating between two different kinds of segments. In one kind of segment, you are jumping on this like flat minecart with spikes on either end, and it just starts rocketing through the stage, tearing up any enemies in front of you. But at some point, you will actually have to realize that it's about to fall into a pit, and you'll need to jump off and jump to safety. Or alternatively, you are getting chased by this large robot with this big like spike crusher that is actually breaking parts of the stage as it goes. Getting ahead or behind this thing can enable you to pick up the upgrades in the stage. Basically, it's a, like, keep-moving, fairly fun stage overall. Just, it's not necessarily hard. It's, I just enjoy it. The boss himself is a pain in the neck. He only really has two tricks. 
One is to roll into an invincible ball and start bouncing around the stage like crazy until he just decides that he's done, which sometimes can take a long time. The other is to fire some basic shots at you, and if you try to attack him during that time, unless you literally hit him as he's firing the shot, he will actually block your attacks. And and he does have a unique thing where if you hit him specifically with the charged buster, he will actually like not just block it but absorb it and then release a counterattack burst, but that does actually give you an opportunity to hit him as well. He can be a really, really slow fight if you don't have his weakness weapon. Like, I mean, a really slow fight. Finally, we get to Spark Mandrel stage. This is like the internals of a power facility or something. If you have completed Storm Eagle's stage, Storm Eagle's jet will actually have crashed into this stage. This means that at the start of the stage, if you didn't crash Storm Eagle's jet into the stage, you will have to jump over electric floors at certain points. Otherwise, the power will actually be flickering on and off, and the background sections will be dark from time to time, and you'll have to like pay attention not to fall into pits and stuff as you go. This stage also has a mid-boss, which is like some kind of eight-pointed bot that is firing off like water bubbles, and like it is encased in a bubble that as it like bounces around the room and clings to the ceiling and stuff, the bubble distorts and stretches. This boss is absolutely a hey, look at what the SNES can do visually, flex boss. Spark Mandrel himself might be the most difficult of the bosses. He only has one projectile attack, which is just like sparks that'll travel along the ground and then along the walls. Other than that, he's like jumping around on the ceiling and trying to drop down on you, launching himself fist first across the room. The big thing is that he's very, very quick in starting up all of his actions. He just does them. There's very, very little warning. You can at least knock him out of his animation with a charged buster shot, but he's a very quick and very aggressive boss, and when I replayed in reverse order and took on him first, definitely the hardest that I faced. Anyway, that's the eight Maverick Sages. We are already running really long. Let's hit up the weapons. Weapons in this game are good, partially because there's just so many enemies in this game that have a lot of health. The better that these weapons are at dealing with the large amounts of enemy health, generally the better they are. I'm also going to detail what each weapon does really quickly if it's fully charged. Generally, most of the fully charged weapons are not actually worth the amount of time it requires to charge them up. They aren't really anything that special, but some of them are exceptions to that. First, the electric spark. You fire a shot when it hits a wall or an enemy, it breaks into a couple separate shots that go just directly up and down. Charged up? It will release electric walls that fire both forward and backwards. The main issue with this weapon is that, like, it's not the fastest projectile, and it's also not the strongest projectile. There's a couple rooms in the game where its ability to fire up and down along walls is actually kind of useful, but they're somewhat rare. It just doesn't feel like a particularly impactful weapon to me, other than the fact that it is the weakness for a phase of the final boss. Oh, and it makes the Armored Armadillo fight not suck. If you hit Armored Armadillo with this weapon, it literally knocks his armor off and he can no longer block attacks even while rolling. Speeds up the fight incredibly, but other than those two situations, like this barely saw any use for me. The rolling shield. Not a shield weapon. It's just a big orb projectile that you shoot. Kind of feels basically similar to like the bubble lead or something, but bigger and faster. It's more useful because there's a number of bosses that are actually weak to it, and it's not even that great against Launch Octopus because Launch Octopus's own projectiles, they'll still cancel each other out. If charged up, this does actually provide you with a genuine shield, which 
which will last until you run into an enemy that's too big to be instant destroyed by it, or it has blocked too many bullets. I think there's a limit to it. I'm not actually sure. Would actually be a fairly decent defensive weapon if it didn't lock you into firing the rolling shield as your base weapon, and if not for a certain weapon that we're going to get to later. Firewave, short-range flamethrower that continues to fire out while you hold down the button. If you can get up in something's face, this will deal with most enemies pretty quickly and is pretty decent for it. It is a useless weapon underwater, and it's actually made worse once you start getting the ability to charge up, because once you hit the full charge, the weapon will actually stop firing, ready to unleash its charge, but also because it is constantly firing while you are charging up, it uses ammo really quick for every charge shot. The charge shot is really cool in that it lobs a projectile that just bursts into like a slow-moving but extremely powerful fire wave along the ground. But there weren't really any cases where I looked at the game and went, oh yeah, that's the weapon I need right now. Unlike the previous weapons, it at least does like very respectable damage and is really good for dealing with certain tanky enemies, but there's there's better options. Shotgun ice. Basically the crystal eye from Mega Man 5, but not junk. It doesn't lag up the game, and the projectiles that it backblasts when it breaks actually will pierce through walls and stuff. And surprisingly, there's a lot of vertical spaces in here where being able to just fire against either wall and spread out and deal with enemies is actually kind of useful. It has a special animation when you hit Spark Mandrel with it that actually freezes him in place and makes him break free, and you can loop him with this, which makes one of the most difficult bosses very, very easy. If you charge it up, it actually creates a sled that kind of acts like the um, spiked cart from Armored Armadillo stage. You jump on it and it starts sliding through enemies and tearing them apart. It's it's just there's very, very few opportunities in the game where, as a weapon, it is actually beneficial to you. The stages just are not designed to enable that, unfortunately. The Boomerang Cutter. Not to be confused with Cutman's Rolling Cutter, even though it's basically the same weapon. The curvature is a little different. It does hit straight in front of you, and then it curves into a wide loop, which is generally better. The big thing that makes the Boomerang Cutter actually practically useful is that the Boomerang Cutter is capable of grabbing items. If it destroys an enemy and that enemy leaves a drop, the Boomerang Cutter will automatically pull that drop back to you. It can, and in fact is intended to, be used to pick up a couple different heart containers and sub-tanks throughout the game that are in locations, in at least one case, like literally behind a wall with no other way to get to it. If you fire this weapon and it actually makes its way back to you as opposed to being soaked by an enemy's HP pool, you will recover a bit of the weapon energy used to fire it. Also, when you are fighting Flame Mammoth, this isn't Flame Mammoth's weakness, but if you hit Flame Mammoth's trunk with this, you can cut off his trunk. And if you're playing Legacy Collection, like Mega Man X Legacy Collection, you get an achievement for it called Nobody Knows My Sorrow, and that's the best thing. <laughs> The charged version of this weapon just fires like four giant projectiles in diagonal directions and is like a decent-ish screen assault weapon. Anyway, it's not necessarily an amazing weapon, but it's a pretty functional one with a bunch of like just neat little utility things that you'll be breaking it out regularly for. The Horming Torpedo. Not to be mistaken for the Homing Torpedo, the Horming Torpedo is actually spelt this way on the Weapon Get screen. In many ways, this should be the Dive Missile, but the Dive Missile had a bunch of reasons it was terrible. The Horming Torpedo fixes those. It turns at a very, very quick radius, so it is actually effective at tracking down enemies. 
weapons. It does decent damage. You can have multiple of it on screen at once. And with how vertical a lot of the stages in this game are, there's a lot of times where you need to deal with enemies coming from above you. I actually found myself frequently wanting to use this weapon for just, like, smaller grade enemies in awkward locations. If you charge it up, it fires multiple fish projectiles instead of a missile. They actually do the homing thing as well, so it's not that bad. Second place, the Storm Tornado. This is a long, lingering forward cyclone weapon. Essentially, think of it like a big, thick laser beam that hangs around for a couple seconds. The fact that it hangs around is what makes this weapon extremely powerful. This is the most powerful weapon in the game for dealing with the tanky enemies, because it will hit them on basically, like, every frame or two constantly for several frames, and it will tear apart just about anything with HP in this game. Nothing except for bosses and mid-bosses survives more than one hit of this. It's a great weapon. The only reason that you wouldn't use it for more things in this game is that it is only a forward-only weapon. You can fix that by charging it up. If you charge it up, the effect will actually go above and below you in a thick cyclone, but the fact that you have to charge that up and how short that one lasts, it's not really worth doing. The only reason the Storm Tornado isn't the best weapon in the game, though, is that the Chameleon Sting exists. The base fire of the Chameleon Sting shoots out a single projectile in front of you that then splits into three separate projectiles a moment later. If you are at a decent distance from something, not too far or not too close, you will actually be able to hit multiple times and it can deal good damage. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a super impressive weapon if not for its charged function. If you charge up the chameleon sting, you just straight up get to go invincible for about 10 seconds. Enemies will not touch you, projectiles won't hit you, spikes will not damage you. It doesn't even consume too much ammo in order to use this charged shot. You just get 10 seconds of invincibility. What the heck? There are some rooms towards the end of this game as we move into the fortress that would be absolutely jerks without the chameleon sting, but we have it and we get to charge it up, and we get to go invincible, and it, it kills a lot of the difficulty later in this game. Not all of it, though. Speaking of which, having cleared all eight of the Mavericks, we get a brief cutscene where Zero shows back up and tells us, hey, we found Sigma's fortress, let's go. Interestingly, we do not actually get, like, a map of Sigma's Fortress displaying what the levels are going to be like. Also, interestingly, in Sigma's Fortress, we always access it from the stage select screen for each individual stage. I don't believe passwords maintain our progress in the Fortress. However, if for some reason we need to leave the Fortress and come back, we can. And also, because we are returning to the stage select screen between each stage, you begin each stage of Sigma's Fortress with maximum weapon energy. No more gauntlet. You can go nuts. The first stage is exactly what you pretty much expect of uh, climbing the outside of the fortress in order to get in. Apparently, it's a floating fortress, so we have to like cross an awkward platforming segment where homing enemies fly in at us unexpectedly as we're going. It's a bit irritating. Once we breach the outer gate, we see Zero again, who chases down Vile. We hear them fight, and then we enter the next room, and Vile's got Zero captured, and he's gonna hack us up with his mech again. You can blow entire sets of weapon energy trying to kill Vile here. Can't do it. Eventually, he's gonna beat us down again. Just before he kills us, Zero breaks free of captivity, jumps on the back of Vile in his right armor, and blows himself up. That doesn't kill Vile, but it does destroy the right armor, allowing us to actually fight with Vile after we suddenly regenerate our energy for no reason. I mean, obviously it's supposed to be an anime, like, oh, I'm not gonna let you get away with this moment, but anyway. 
Vile just runs and jumps around and fires various projectiles at us. Feels very familiar to the Darkman robots, kind of. After defeating Vile, though, we run over and we see what's left of Zero, who is saying that, oh, well, he's done for. He's way too damaged to just be repaired. Like, we're gonna have to go on without him. And Zero f***ing beefs it. So I hope you didn't get too attached to Zero. Wait, I guess I did say he's gonna be important for this series. Um, so I should clarify that with Zero beefs it for the first time. If, by the way, you did not pick up the Buster upgrade by this point, Zero will actually hand off his Buster to you, which functions identically to having the Buster upgrade. So you are guaranteed to have the ability to charge your special weapons for the rest of this fortress. Which is really good, because I'm going to tell you right now, Stage 2 and 3, and the remainder of Stage 1 of this game, this is the most boring fortress in the series to date. I mean, okay, technically, Mega Man DOS 1 had, like, the most boring one, in that it was, like, a tiny stage segment, and then a boss refight, and then a tiny stage segment, and the boss refight. But here's the thing, that's also what this game does. Like, I really hate to say it, but that's, that's the remainder of the Sigma Fortress in a nutshell. Tiny stage segment, boss refight, repeat, two or three times, and then fight an actually new boss. And these stage segments are tough, but also we have the ability, and the game has made sure we have the ability, to charge up the chameleon sting and just not care anymore. Uh, let me tell you, I absolutely feel sacrilegious comparing a game as beloved as Mega Man X to a game as reviled as Mega Man DOS, but legitimately here, even if I talked in the previous Mega Man games about how most of the fortresses had boiled down to, like, remixes of stuff we had seen before, they were fully fleshed out stages. And Mega Man X's Sigma Fortress is a room boss, room boss, room boss. I'm really sorry, <laughs> but this is where the game is bad. This is that and the fact that, like, the dash is optional, even though the game is clearly designed around you having it. Just the fortress, the finale of this game is its weakest point. This is the same kind of problem Mega Man 2 had. It also fell apart in Wily's Fortress, but for a different reason. It was still an interesting bunch of stage design that just had weapons group. Mega Man X just drops interesting stage design as an idea and just thinks, oh, I'll just throw a bunch of enemies at the player in between each boss refight. I... Anyway, to cover the bosses in Sigma's Fortress, the first one is the infamous Bow Spider. This is a spider bot that shows up at the top of the screen, and he's got like four different wires that he'll climb down, but before he does that, he creates random like links between those wires, and then this like lotto-style thing that's done as a game where you do that, and then you pick one, and you just follow it, and you go down and along at every branch that you've created, and see where you end up, and that's basically it. The spider's gonna come rolling down those wires and be briefly vulnerable at the bottom of the screen wherever he ends up. And he just gets faster and faster every time he does this. If you don't understand how the movement works, it can actually be a really tough boss. And more than that, before he creates the wires and runs down, he can decide to just throw out some eggs that'll create these spiders that do fairly decent damage and will most importantly get in your way as you try to figure out where he is moving. This boss, if he doesn't ever do the eggs, he's actually not that bad. If he does, it's a real pain in the ass. Like, the difficulty on this boss can vary wildly person to person. Second stage boss is 
also kind of neat and inventive. It's essentially like a giant face in the background. There are two eyes that will function as turrets that occasionally open up, and when they're open, you can attack them. There is a core part in the center that when it activates, it will drag in the walls and like force you to wall jump because in the center of the floor, there's a pit with spikes. You obviously will just die if you fall on that. So you have to like counterattack this thing while wall jumping. And you have to destroy each of these three parts as different parts, and they will alternate between which one's active until you only have one left. It's it's kind of a fun and interesting fight. Stage 3's boss fight is this weird tank thing that is like composed of two parts, one of which is the wheels on the bottom and the other of which is usually hanging up on the ceiling, but will drop down if you are caught between the two of them and try to crush you. Honestly, compared to the creativity of the previous two bosses, not really anything that special. And again, I have nothing else to say about the stages. It's literally just in the middle of this, you're going to have all the boss refights as you go through these stages. Stage 4 isn't even a stage. It's an empty vertical column that you climb up while ominous music plays in the background, and then you reach the top, and the gate seals behind you, and you're in the boss fight with Sigma. Sigma, I should describe him. He is kind of the Dr. Wily of this series. He's the villain of the majority of the X Games and our final boss. And generally, he is like a very buff-looking robot. Facially, he is defined by not having any sort of helmet, but actually being like bald as hell and having like a really square, defined chin. And anyway, this final boss fight is the hardest that the series has seen to date. First off, because it is three phases long. Second off, because every phase does a ton of damage. If you don't have a bunch of heart tanks and the body armor, there's a good chance you'll be able to take like maybe two hits from this boss. And you have three phases to go through that are very, very randomized and very rough. Phase one, Sigma isn't even fighting you himself. He's sicking his dog on you, which is basically like a sleeker, larger purple rush. Jumps around the room like crazy, he fires like either like electric shots or like a flamethrower that goes down under the floor and comes back up under you. Very mobile, very tough to no damage, but he's weak to the shotgun ice, but he also takes full damage from the buster, and if you take advantage of like charged buster shots, you can actually knock him out of his attack animations or jumps, so it might be better to use that. In phase two, Sigma jumps down, throws off his cape, and pulls out, I kid you not, a lightsaber to fight you with. He's very aggressive and very quick, and until you realize he is manipulatable, very, very difficult to deal with. This one, the way that you manipulate him is by climbing the wall. If you are up in the corner of the room, the only thing Sigma will do is start bouncing left and right up the walls, doing his own wall jumps to try to get to you, and you can lock him into a pattern of this, of like shooting him as he comes up and bounce off the walls to get back down to you. You can completely manipulate this fight, which is good, because the only weapon that does more than one damage to this phase is the spark, and the spark only does two damage. This is a long phase. I will cover this right now. If you die during this fight and you want to actually recharge your sub-tanks or your weapons or anything, the only real option you have is to turn on the rolling cutter shield and stand in front of a small hole in the wall as you climb up, and enemies will like slowly filter out of it pretty harmlessly, and they'll instant die due to the rolling shield's uh, shield, and then just drop the item right on top of you, but it takes forever to charge back up. It's such a pain in the neck. This, by the way, is how I noticed that the energy balancer was in this game, because it will also be nice and refill your shotgun ice and 
your spark, because doing this method, you wouldn't really be able to switch to any of the other weapons. Anyway, those first two phases, honestly, they're tricky, they're very random, but they wouldn't be that bad if the third phase didn't exist. We've blown up Sigma, his head drops to the floor, and then it floats upwards into a giant wolf robot thing in the background. Basically Sigma's fursuit. The actual vulnerable part of this boss is right up at the ceiling, it's right up at the head. In order to get up there, we're going to have to either wall jump up the sides or ride on his claws, which might come down and let us ride on them. The claws stick close to the walls, so it's very difficult to just jump up without accidentally jumping into the underside of the claws and taking damage. The claws can at random stop for a moment and then shoot lightning both up and down, which makes them dangerous to use as platforms. And the main body, if you're hanging around on the floor for too long, can do like a flamethrower spread through the middle of the arena, or can fire sparks one by one that require you to carefully time a dash to get between them or you're going to get hit. This phase is wholly random of essentially three different parts deciding to attack however the heck they want. Everything in this phase does a bunch of damage. And of course, the weapon that is his weakness is the hardest one to hit with, the rolling cutter, which can't just be fired from the walls, you actually have to be like riding the hands and get close to him. Most of the weapons don't even work on him. Like, don't think for a moment you can just sit down at the bottom and fire the homing torpedo. Nope. This is this is legitimately a very, very difficult final boss. And Mega Man X has a reputation of having been noticeably more difficult than previous games. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think part of it was people still getting used to the fact that there was so many more buttons, like getting used to the idea of the dash jump and stuff. And having played Mega Man X games before, and later Mega Man games, I'm very familiar with that sort of momentum. It feels very natural to me. But absolutely, the reputation for difficulty is earned in this final boss fight. Holy crap. We finally take down Sigma, we escape from his floating fortress, it crashes into the sea, and the game begins a monologue about how even if the war's over now, uh, those who died won't return. That's going to be really funny in retrospect. <laughs> X starts regretting his actions and wondering if maybe there wasn't a better way this all could have turned out. And we get the wonderful little text of how long will he keep on fighting? How long will the pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on his hand knows for sure. God, that's some emo-ass 90s writing. Holy crap! <laughs> that is some try-hard. Anyway, we get a staff roll in the credits as Mega Man runs back along the repaired highway from the beginning stage, where we see, like, all the different Mavericks, but they're just, like, ghosts on the horizon. We also see Zero there to be a reminder, like, hey, Zero's dead. No, he's not. And if you wait after all the credits finish on the, like, thank you for playing screen, a TV in the background will turn on and Sigma will show up, and he's just like, oh, well, you thought you'd seen the last of me. Good news, you killed my body, but not my spirit, and I'm gonna get a better body, and I'm gonna come back and kick your butt, X. He, he's a little more serious than that, but that's basically what he's saying, and if it wasn't for the fact that I know what happens roughly in some of the later X games, the idea of, oh, Sigma was just a ghost the whole time would sound utterly ridiculous. <laughs> and also, it kind of thwarts the whole thing about how we were just talking about how those who died won't return. Come on, guys. Don't robots die when they are killed? <sighs> anyway, that's the ending. Let's hit up the music real quick, because if you haven't caught on to what I've already been playing in this game, this game's soundtrack is kind of famously a banger. I'll admit, I'm not a huge fan of it, but I think that's just me not 
being super fond of a couple of the bits of the sound font and them just sounding weird to me. Or maybe it's just because I've been exposed to the soundtrack so much. But it is kind of a jam. And here's three tracks that I think are specifically worth calling out. The first one I want to call out is Spark Mandrel's stage. Listen, if you're going to have a game with rock music, you have got to have a track that just sounds like two dudes having the wickedest guitar duel of their lives. second stage I want to shout out in terms of music is Armored Armadillo stage. I mentioned that the stage is a really high-energy, high-octane stage that takes advantage of the processing to move, like, really fast in some segments. So, naturally, we get this really upbeat track that actually, like, more than just rock, I feel like it incorporates a certain spirit of, like, big band energy into it. Like, I think you'll see exactly what I mean. favorite track from this game is probably going to be a weird choice for most people. It's the first Sigma stage. Every Sigma stage does have its own music in this game, so there's that at least going for it. But Sigma Stage 1 is the only one I actually like. It does this weird thing where it isn't necessarily high energy or, like, hard rock, but it kicks in, like, in and out between, like, this this sense of danger and finality and then hard segments, and it's got a great bass playing going on underneath it. It's just, it's doing something really interesting in the soundtrack that the rest of the soundtrack isn't doing, and I love it.
Okay, final thoughts on Mega Man X. Overall, a very solid game. Here's the thing. The stages have roughly enough variety to stay interesting. They're very interestingly challenging. I think some of them are absolutely designed expecting you to be coming in with, like, different weapons. The fact that the dash is absolutely, like, that shouldn't have been optional. That should have been given to you in the first stage, or something. Like, I really dislike that you could play every single stage other than Chill Penguins and suffer through this game, and then, like, oh, hey, here's this thing that would have made it way easier for you literally in the middle of a stage. But the stages are fun. The actual Maverick fights, they're fun. The bosses in this game in general are really fun. The final boss is, some might argue, a little bit too much, but, you know, if you're gonna do a final boss is literally just the stage. Like, as funny as it is to me to have a bird beat the crap out of Dr. Wily effortlessly on a final phase. For the fact that they definitely seem to have wanted a more challenging, more technical game, yeah, it's it's tough. This is definitely overall, even knowing a bunch of stuff going into this game, this was overall one of the harder Mega Man games that I've played. If it wasn't for the fact that I honestly think the Sigma Fortress, like, stage design is the worst in the series that was actually developed by Capcom, like, I honestly think I still prefer Mega Man 1's Wily Fortress over this one, and that one, in retrospect, wasn't really all that much of anything. It's really a shame, because... It's still playable, it's still decently fun, it's just weak, and it's a big weak spot in otherwise what would have been a really, really good game, I think. And another thing that I didn't even bring up, like, other than the fact that the heart tanks are one per Maverick stage, there isn't really a good way to tell which stages have the sub-tanks or the actual upgrade capsules. They're not balanced out in any way where that makes any sort of sense, so if you want to track down 100% is a pain in the neck. Speaking of 100%, I completely forgot to mention the Easter egg in this game, which is incredibly dumb. <laughs> uh, so let's let's cover that now, while, before I wrap this up. Once you have every single upgrade in the game, go to Armored Armadillo's stage and finish it five times. At the very end of the stage, there's a segment where you can climb up the ledge above the boss door and find a single energy capsule and, and a conspicuous little space that looks like it should lead into another room, but actually doesn't. On the fifth time that you do this in a row, if you have full health when you see this spot, there will actually be a fifth Dr. Light upgrade capsule. And when you approach it, Dr. Light's hologram is wearing a karate gi and tells you that you're awesome and that you should hop in. When you do, Mega Man unlocks the ability to perform a Hadouken when using his regular X-Buster. You do this exactly like you would in Street Fighter. Down, down, forward, forward, fire. You can only do this at full HP, and when you do this, the Hadouken is an instant kill on anything it hits. Even the final boss will be one-shot by a well-used Hadouken. <laughs> it's extremely hard to get up there into position to actually hit him, but you can. The nature of this, as just an obscure secret, honestly, finish the stage five times in a row with all of your upgrades, make sure you have full health at the end of it, and go to this suspicious-looking spot in the map. That sounds like the exact kind of like schoolyard muse under the truck rumor that had absolutely no basis that you would have heard as a kid kid, and yet it's actually true. It's it's just this goofy little easter egg that kind of caps off the game as the final secret. Anyway, my point is this. Mega Man X is still a pretty good game. I don't think it's as flawless as people tend to treat it, just because the end of it is so weak. But it's still really good. It'll still probably be pretty fun for somebody to pick up and play, although it's definitely, definitely just because of the way it's designed and stuff, you have to be a little bit more dexterous. You have to be more skilled to get through this game. 
but I do think it still holds up really well today. I, some people would say it's possibly the best Mega Man game ever made. I don't know. That's why I'm continuing to play through these, because I don't necessarily know if it is, but I don't necessarily know if it isn't yet. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Next episode, I promise, will be a much shorter affair. We'll be breaking down two games at once again. In fact, we might be doing that a couple times in the near future. If you are interested in getting in touch about the show, hit me up at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter, whatamipodcast4, using the number 4. Stop by waipf.podbean.com for the fastest updates on when new episodes go up. It's every other Monday. Or continue to listen in on your favorite provider. Thanks for listening, and just remember, according to Mega Man X, people die when they are killed. We still have the chargeable Mega Buster in this game. Chargeable X Buster in this game. How many times am I going to do that? The upgraded Mega Buster allows for an additional level of charge on your Mega Bus. <sighs> this is the last stage that changes based on whether or not you've done certain Robot Masters. Speaking of which, having cleared all eight of the Robot Masters...